see some movement at the takeoff zone. It's Kelly Slater grabbing rail. A clean entry. This thing holding open. It spits. When it spit me, I thought it was going to spit me off my board. Comes out with the spit. Spits him out. Comes out after the spit. Gets spat out of another good-looking wave here. Spit, spit, spit. We're just spitballing, right? Yeah, I got Freaking guy. Yeah, guy. Yeah, guy, yeah, guy, yeah, guy, yeah, guy, yeah, guy. Yo, bro. Welcome, everybody. Spit. Spitballing at you, David Lee Scales, sitting across from me in his lightly ironed button up sort of. What color is that? I'd call it an olive. It is an olive. That's exactly right. Olive, thank you. You're welcome. And. Scott Bass with you. David Lee Scales, Scott Bass, Spit, the Spit Podcast, where we spitball different surf talk at you. And um, it is Wednesday, January 24th, 2018. And David, good morning. Good morning, Scott. Coming in live from the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center. Thanks to the staff for showing up early just to let us in. Yeah, Nice, right? That's very nice. We have our private studio here in um, in the library. So surrounded by, well, I don't know what. <laughs> this or the Surfrider quiet space? Ah, entirely different. This is hard to beat. So the Surfrider space is like a designated quiet room. So I think they have soundproofing and stuff, which isn't for the benefit of the people inside of it. It's for the benefit of the people outside. So it's not to uh, be affected by anything that's happening inside. But this is actually filled with a lot more history and um yeah surf film surf this, this form I'm, i've never been to the surf rider room but this this room must feel warmer and more inviting and more these chairs are comfortable nicer. these chairs are nicer for sure hey scott yes um i got a question for you yes what kind of surfboard do you think billy gibbons rides billy gibbons easy top billy gibbons that's the billy gibbons hey um let's see he's from texas um, I'm going to say probably a Hobie. Ooh, that's a pretty good guess. You ready for it? Yeah. Uh, have, you, have you ever been surfing before? Oh, yes. Many, many times. Uh, uh, it's it's uh, one of the great pastimes. If we have a day off, we'll be definitely hitting the water. What sort of board do you ride? Have you got a, a like a mount or something? Well, if we're able to travel, I've got an old, uh, a really a, a nice redwood board from Dale Belsey from the 50s. It's quite valuable, but it is quite quite the, uh, it's a delight to, to stand atop and, and catch a wave or two. <laughs> it's a delight to stand atop and catch a wave or two. It sounds like it's heavy. It's an old redwood Belsey. It's yeah. probably really heavy, and I doubt he rides it. I think he hangs it. I think it hangs. You, really? Yeah. That's about You're denying here. Billy Gibbons what he just stated as mm-hmm. fact? I'm just saying I don't think he gets in the water too much. I don't either. Well, they're busy. They're constantly touring. So my question to you, Scott, is um, does that up Billy Gibbons' core score for you? The fact, maybe he doesn't even surf, but the fact that he owns an original Velzy Redwood. Yeah, I mean, I, I love the fact that he owns an old cool board, you know. Um, it doesn't surprise me. You know, he's a pretty, he is a cool mofo and one of my absolute favorite guitar players and the band zz top specifically the album dwayne 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 help me out durango no it's d-u-e 
L L E G O, and the the L's are those that rolling yeah. Spanish L, and I'm obviously having problems with it. Duelgo, Duelgo, okay. Duelgo. Anyway, great albums. Got Esther be the one. Uh, Duelgo, Duelgo. It's got Thank You. It's got um, I'm Bad. I'm Nationwide, which frankly could be the best song ever. Like, mm. We haven't really. We used to discuss best song ever a lot. Was that? My another co-host of mine, maybe. No, we did. Yeah, best. Song I mean, ever. it started before I came around, but it was. We yeah, talked I've about got it. like three best songs ever. Okay, so one of them is David Bowie's "Right." Okay. Which I'm just I just was turned on to about three weeks ago, and I'm just totally fascinated. And it by. already became on your best songs <laughs> ever. <laughs> no, it's list. insane. Because I was arguing that Young American was the best song ever, and he's like, "Well, same album. Listen to this song," and I'm like, "Oh, I love this song. I've heard this song. I forgot about this song." So that's when I and then. Um, I'm Bad, I'm Nationwide by ZZ Top is one of the best songs ever. And then Kid Charlemagne by Steely Dan. Wow. So those three right now are in the running for the number one best song ever, bar none, Mozart, Bach, Dylan, you name it. Those three, pretty much 1A, 1B, and 1C. Bold, bold claims there, Scott. Yeah. Crazy. So, okay, I'm shocked that uh, there's no Almond Brothers on there. Coming it's, from you. Could be next week. Things are changing. Right, right, right. Best song ever, week by week. So then let me ask you this then. Yes. What would Bowie ride? If if Billy Gibbons rides a Velzy Radwood, what would Bowie ride? Bowie rides a um he rides a Malibu chip from uh from the days of Malibu from Matt Kivlin. He rides a Matt Kivlin, very sleek, stylish, probably silver and paint. Mm. And uh and he just, you know, he just cruises. He kicks out with dry hair and he lights a cigarette. See, I think he rides a Greeno spoon. Hmm. Stand up. Wow. That's what would it's a disconnect for me. But what what would Greg Allman ride? Single fin brewer. <laughs> I don't know. Those are those are it's kind of a it's it's straight down the line. I just all these guys smoke cigarettes, so I'm like, I doubt they even serve. I can, I'm sure I'm not sure they can swim. You know, that's the fun of the game. Yeah, right on, dude. Well, what do you got, Scott? Well, um, uh, it's been see. a while. We need to catch up on the boards that you've been testing, or have you still been testing? You know, the waves have been so big, I haven't been riding any of those boards. I've been okay. riding another board, different yeah. board. But um, what have you been riding? I've been riding a Steve Coletta. Steve Coletta's from Santa Cruz, yeah. like a legendary, iconic shaper from Santa Cruz. Um, he makes boards for guys over in Kauai and anyway, so Steve was kind enough to make me a board a couple of years ago now, um, a seven, eight, kind of what he calls a pocket egg or a pocket rocket or a rocket egg, which is a, a little narrower egg for bigger surf wintertime surf. So I have a seven, eight that, um, has been just going great. Like the last week we had those big waves. Man, what a what a week of surf! It no was kidding. incredible. It sort of set me back as far as work is concerned because totally. I was in the water a lot. So yeah, Steve Coletta. Coletta, um, I love Coletta. By the way, just talking to him, super cool guy. You have to uh, just sign off all of your time and your responsibility for things that you were going to do that day because he will not stop talking. Yes, but you want to let him go because he's amazing. Um, and I was talking to him at your last boardroom show that you hosted up there in Santa Cruz. And what is he? He's in his 70s now, maybe mid 70s. Yeah, I, th I think something like that. Maybe, yeah, maybe late 60s. And his son now shapes too, Kalu. Kalu Kalu. Kalu. So yeah. um, Steve 
in his later years, I was like, what are you like? Where are you surfing? What are you riding? And you think of older guys getting on bigger boards and he's like, no, 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 I'm riding short boards. And he's a smaller dude, but he's like, I tried going larger. And what ends up happening is it's easier to stand up on. It's easier to paddle all that sort of stuff. But when I kick out of a wave, if I'm trying to swing a longboard around, it's so hard to do. Or like you just, if you duck dive, if you're trying to get over a wave, any other positioning other than when you're paddling and standing up, it's much more difficult on my body. So the small board is actually like way easier for me. Yeah, it takes a little more paddle power and I have to like manage the get up. But once I'm up and once I'm moving and once I'm doing 95% of what you're doing while you're in the water, having less foam is actually a lot easier on my body. And I was like, wow, I never thought of it that way, but really accurate. Yeah, no, he, he totally nailed it. I would, I would agree. That's uh, sadly a revelation that I'm coming to as I see as, as a, as a uh, truism. So, yeah. Well, can I tell you what you'll be writing um, for the next few days? Yeah. I have a gift right here. You're kidding. No, come and get it. Oh, my God. Do what do we have here? Do an unveiling on the air. I'll filibuster while you're... Uh... While you're reaching in, I'm reaching this, into was the a, board bag. this was a this was a loner. Oh, you're kidding! Oh, this was a loner from a listener. Oh my God! Corey Scrivener in uh, Point Wyneme, Santa Barbara Ventura area. Wow. Scrivy Scrivy Surfboards is his wow. label. This board was featured um, on Board Porn's Instagram account a month or two ago, when Corey was building it. But he built it, sent it down for us to sample as a loner. And Very I, cool. I was writing it before, again, before that big swell. I wrote it a bunch. Um, super fun board. Asymmetrical. Well, this is cool, you know. Um, sorry, you're going to have to keep filibustering for a minute here. No, it's okay. I'm going to let you give the rundown. It's um, it's asymmetrical, so it's 5'11 on one side, at kind of from nose to the point of that side of the tail, and then 5 nine on the other side it's got a three fin setup one large i think off a twin fin set on one side and then two small what would be quad setup quad fins on the other side any other notes well it's a beautiful board i mean i'm just kind of taking it in here i'm eyeing it up and down i'm I'm intrigued by it it's it's uh, you know you know some listeners may know this but my experience with the asymmetrical is a bit different than others in that I have always had the toe side rail be the shorter side and the heel side rail be the longer side. And that goes against, I guess you could say, conventional wisdom regarding asymmetrical design in that, you know, I think Kenvin and Ekstrom and those guys and and Birch and those guys, and I don't want to speak for them, but I'm of the opinion that they prefer it like this board here where the shorter side is is the uh, back side. The yeah, heel the, side. The toe side has the longer rail line. And I personally have, ri- I rode both, you know, Carl made me some boards and I was like, let's try it the other way. Actually, he gave me one that he had made for a goofy foot hmm. for um, Tyler at FCS. Tyler Callaway, he had made a board for, and Tyler's a goofy foot. And he goes, hey, well, try this. Or I, lo- I grabbed it. I go, let me try this one. So I tried it the other way and I found it to work really good, you know, really? because, well, just, so to, if the toe side's shorter, all our sensitivity is in the toe side, right? We can, we're much more able to sort of nuance through the turn, put our weight in different positions on the balls of our toes and our feet. You know, we can tippy toe on our tippy toes. So in, you know, in relation to that or opposite of that, I guess you should say, is your heel side is you're throwing all the weight on your heels. You have no sensitivity. You're just 
going back on your heels. And so my feeling is, why not take the sensitive toe side and have it shorter? I can go up the wave face quicker, right? I'm going to turn up the wave face quicker. And then as I'm flying down the line, I'm going to have all this speed. I'm going to be able to throw this big backs or cut back on the longer toes, uh, heel side. And my feeling was it just felt better. It was just the way I surfed, you know? And again, the thing, the beauty of asymmetricals is there's no right or wrong way, really. I mean, it's asymmetrical and it's very, by its very nature, there's no symmetrical way to surf. Right. Well, what's funny is we were talking about your Roy Sanchez boards that you've been writing um, and trying to isolate all these really minute variables and then it really just comes down to certain boards. It's just a confluence of all of those things that work together in harmony. And the other one, you're not sure which variable is different and why it doesn't work or why it doesn't feel. So the asymmetrical adds additional layers and it makes it even more complicated. So I'm wondering with that board that you loved from Ekstrom, was it that you loved the length of the rail, you know, uh, ver- or was it just the board came together? All those things just happened to work better. Is it is it the outline that mattered the well, most? Well, I, I went to the out. I, I, after I rode that board, I had the rest of my asymmetricals that were made. I think I had two more made by Carl that were like that. So I was sold on that outline, the toe side being the shorter rail line. Yeah. So I was into that. But I did, and at Carl's urging, we played around with a lot of fins. I mean, he gave me a box of fins, and we moved them around and I ended up with five different fins in my board. I had wow. a five, it was a five box setup. I had one of those nubsters in the middle and I had literally five completely different fins from like different companies and stuff, you wow. know, like, because we played with it so much that I got it to a place where I was like, wow, this is, in, this is incredible. And there were some of the fastest, if not the fastest surfboards. I've had two really fast surfboards that were just mind blowingly fast. Yeah. And one was a Chris Christensen, twin fin a round pin it was insanely fast from point a to point b it was mind-blowing and the only other board that was perhaps faster than that was the extra and it and it had nothing to do with the fins or the outline it had everything to do with the rail and it was just this gnarly which i love this down rail and man did that thing it, it blew my mind when you stood on it it was as if there was a motor underneath you and it was just gonna it just went mm-hmm. you know like you didn't have to do anything it just took off you know now a lot of times when you have that much speed, you have to manage it. And sometimes that can be problematic. You know, like, well, how do I pull it back and I rein it in? If I do rein it in, am I reining it in too much? And you know. every everything is, there's always a give and a take. So it's like, yeah, you can make a flat board that goes very, very fast, but then you won't be able to turn. So what you get out of rocker is the ability to put it on the rail. And then the more rocker you have, the tighter turning radius that'll wrap. But that rocker, when it's going straight, is going to push water. So you give and you take those things. How flat can I go to get the speed I want with still adding enough rocker on the curve of the rail line once it lays sideways to get the turning that I want? When I posted a photo of your Roy Roy Sanchez board after our last show, listener DM'd it to me and he's like, hey, because it showed the bottom with the fins and the wide tail. And I had had a previous conversation with Dave Parmenter, who was like, no, fins create drag. A lot of quads go fast, not because they're four fins. It's because it has a super wide tail exactly. planing surface. Exactly. So listener sends me that photo of your board and he's like, hey, I know wide tails um, faster, but then don't fins create drag? And so how does how do you reconcile these two things? And it's like, well, 
Jeez. Well, what the, the forefin and Dave could speak to this better than I because I'm not a shaper, but my experience is, is that a quad gives you squirt, what I like to call squirt, where there's just a little extra flow that comes out of the turn because there's not a middle fin where the water's flowing. Everything's funneling to that swallowtail. And if there's a middle fin there, that drags right in the middle and it's right at the end of the, the planing surface. Whereas with nothing in the middle there and you've just got water flowing between the four fins, I notice that there's a bit more what I like to call squirt and it's the best way I can explain it. But when I'm, for instance, trying to drive around a section that I might not otherwise make it around, it seems like the quad gives me that ability to just get Dr- me... Drive, maybe. Drive. That the... A fish doesn't have the drive in that moment. Well, right? the three fin, and again, there's so many different variables. I mean, some boards can and some boards can't, no matter how many right, fins right, or whatever. Right. But I've just noticed that the quads give me this, what I like to call squirt, or just this little extra sauce, you know, that gets right. me around and gets me through and gives me some, not speed, but quickness. Okay. Well, what I wanted to point out to the listener who sent me that question is you're now saying your Ekstrom 5 fin is the fastest board that you've ever had. Everything so if you to do with just, the rail. Right. So if you just take the isolated elements, 5 fins creates more drag, so that's going to go slower. However, this one board that 5 fins were on went faster. So there's a million things to account for, and how they all interplay with one another creates the end result and it's impossible to put those variables in black and white terms and saying they only perform this exactly way. you it's... have to then combine it with the outline of the board that's with the, the shape of the rail of, of with... custom surfboards you know like there's so many boards that we can get that it's... we know are great you know like i've ridden some of kelly's boards from from firewire they're insanely good boards like they're 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 t- what they are is reliable you know but when you build a custom board, you get to play with all of these things. And some might not be as good as others. And it might take a lot longer to get to a place where you're like, wow, this is a really fascinating board for me specifically. Yeah. But it's that journey of playing with all of those things and doing all of that and changing out fins and putting the same fins in a different board and wondering what, you know, all of that stuff is part of the joy of being a surfer and experiencing and experimenting with different surf designs. And that. It, the, it all becomes incumbent upon your com- ability to communicate with that local shaper that you're working with. You need to, if you're going to benefit from that relationship, you need to be able to, to communicate with them what your needs are, what your realistic ability level is, where you're surfing, all that sort of thing, so that they can design solutions for what you're doing. You know? Yeah, you know, and, and that Ekstrom, that five fin, just for the listeners to know, it was a Twinser setup on the okay. toe side. It was a quad setup on the heel side, and it had the nubster fin in the middle. So we we had different. The fin boxes were all over the place, you know. Mm-hmm. And it, it was quite, it was quite an ordeal to get where we got. But um, it was a lot of fun. I missed that board. I wish I, I wish Carl. I probably need to reach out and have Carl make me another board. Did you because, loan it or did you give it back? I, to him? I no, I sold it. You know, I oh. bought it from Carl and I eventually sold it. As I do with a lot of my boards, I'm, I'm I turn things over. You know, I, I've got so many boards coming into me. Like I get to ride this one, right? I have a brand new board today. I'm picking up. A oh my new, gosh, a Twinser. Um, and I'm riding those three Roy Sanchez's, which I haven't had a lot of time on because the waves have been pretty good. Right. And I've got some filmers reaching out, going, "Hey, I'm ready to film you on the Roy Sanchez's." And I'm like, "Oh, okay. Well, I'm kind of busy, and you know, it's, it's been hard." Listeners from the show. Yeah. Based we, on our last conversation. Yeah, and thanks for reaching out. There've been a couple, two or three guys, and and I've been sort of dragging my feet with them because um, just 
life has been yeah. getting in the way. And the waves were huge, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, not huge, but they were big to a place where I wasn't going to ride the, the Sanchez board. But anyway. Uh, Interesting. Interesting talk. I hate to get even deeper into this hole, but I think it's worth it. Um, well, I, mean, I have a segue that will go off of this, too, if you want to go there eventually. But please yeah. continue. Well, I was going to ask you about Carl Ekstrom, um, somebody that I've interviewed on the show and stuff. He doesn't surf. He hasn't surfed in 30 years at this point. And I always – and he, but he's like – probably a more proficient designer in a lot of respects than sur- shapers who surf all the time. And so I always weigh out those two things where it's like, well, I think you got to get in the water and test out your shapes. However, there's real validity to just designing things very effectively and efficiently. He's extreme on this one design end, but not surfing anymore. He surfed enough to know what we're doing in the water to apply that now 30 years later. But it, it makes me curious. I've never ridden his boards. You've ridden his boards. How do you reconcile those things? Um, does it matter that he's not surfing? Um, with Carl, to me, it doesn't. You know, um, With some guys, it kind of does. With some shapers, I'm kind of like, uh, you know, I'd, it's too bad he doesn't surf anymore. I'm not sure. But Carl's just so far advanced and on such a level of design and understanding of he's – you know, he's got a pretty deep background and I'm certainly not one to question it. And the proof is in the pudding. You know, the boards are insane, that, you know, so. That's all you can go by. Once you ride the board, it speaks for itself, I suppose. And just like any surfboard designer, there's boards that don't make sense to you and boards that do make sense to you from the same guy, you know. Um, right. And that's just, that's, you know, that's sort of the fun, yeah. really, is that there's different stuff and. And, you know, you and I spoke and I've had I had a magic board that I had forever that I loved, but I've changed and I've grown. And that board is really no longer my magic board at the time for like 15 years. It was the only board I rode. But if I look back now, I'm like, uh, God, it seems wide and thick. I'm, yeah. I'm riding narrower and thinner boards now. And, you know, just things evolve totally. and change. And totally. it's fun. It's all it's all fun. And this board from Scrivy. Scrivy. Yeah. Corey Scrivener. Corey Scrivener. Thanks for letting us try this. I'm looking forward to it. It looks, uh, it's about as small as I'll ever ride. It's pretty small for me. I thought it was too small for me when I picked it up. Yeah. It felt perfect in the water. Paddling, I was even feeling like, oh, it's not enough foam. And then once I got up, it felt perfect. Yeah, I'll, I'm a little, I'm, how much do you weigh? 175. Yeah, I'm like maybe five pounds more than you yeah. with a wetsuit on. That's like it looks like a summer board for me almost like where I don't have a wetsuit on and I'm in I'm in maybe a little better shape or something. <laughs> summer bod, but, the beach bod. By the way, first time I met Corey was at a boardroom show in Del Mar. He oh, came cool. came down for that. Um, I hope he gets a booth. His boards look insane. Yeah, his be, boards are killer. I'd be stoked to see his boards in, in at the show. Yeah. Uh, by the way, the show is. Uh, May 5th and 6th. Perfect. Yeah, Delmar Fairgrounds, May 5th and 6th, the Boardroom International Surfboard Show. We're filling up quick, actually. It's been it's been fast and furious. Good. Yeah, it's been good. All right, what's your segue? Well, last week, or last time, two weeks ago, we spoke a little bit about um, the 1966 World Championships. And so I thought I would continue on Matt Warshaw's Encyclopedia of Surfing and read a little bit of what Matt wrote recently and see if it segues some discussion from you or from the listeners. Bob McTavish missed the 1966 World Championships 
as the U.S. Department of State had red flagged Bob McTavish, a known stowaway, as a, as a deportee and would not issue him a visa. He mostly steered clear of that contest blustering between the Aussies and the Americans. In February of 67, McTavish moved to Queensland, from Queensland back to Sydney. He got a job shaping for Keough surfboards in Brookvale, and he took a room with, a, with surf movie maker Paul Witzig, John's brother. McTavish launched his new board, excuse me, McTavish in 67, shaping himself a nine-footer with the two bevel surfaces meeting in a V shape along the back third of the board's spine. It was a bizarre piece of surf craft, thicker in the rear than in the middle, with sloping squared off tail that looked as if it belonged on the back of a yacht like a transom. Paul Witzig said the board saw the board right after it was shaped and tossing off a bit of spontaneous counterculture Argo said, wow, it looks like a plastic machine. McTavish rushed back and hand-lettered the phrase in huge psychedelic longhand across the bottom, plastic machine. McTavish launched his new board early the following Saturday and rode for nine hours without a break. It was, he later said, the most enlightening day of surfing he'd ever experienced. Everything McTavish liked about his new plastic machine, in fact, came from the tail section of the board. He understood right away that nose riding no longer much mattered. The nose itself, in fact, was mostly expendable. Two weeks later, McTavish made himself an 8'6". Two weeks after that, he dropped down to an 8-footer. He thinned out the rails, especially in the front end, and used a single layer of glass on each side instead of two. The boards were less sturdy, but they weighed just 12 pounds. 27 pounds, more or less, was the average for a 1966 longboard. The 12-pounder did nearly as much to free up the handling as the V-shape itself. McTavish did most of his test piloting in mediocre but convenient surf in Sydney at Palm Beach, and he often saw Midget Fairley surfing a peak or two uh, next to him on equipment that looked to be just as advanced as his own. It was inspiring but vaguely uncomfortable. The two surfers had been good friends a few years earlier, and that had gone in a bad way. But in 1966, just before Nat Young, Young won the world championship, John Witzig had written an article for Surfing World on Midget Farley with the not-so-subtle title, The End of an Era, and this didn't make Midget very happy. Anybody that was hanging out with Witzig was more or less in what Midget Farley called Nat Young's camp. In 1967, McTavish's association with Nat Young made him something close to an enemy combatant of Midget. Nat Young re-entered the picture in mid-April. His surfing felt a little stagnant. Sam, that magic board he won the world title on just a few months prior, had been left behind in San Diego, and Nat Young couldn't seem to make himself a good replacement. He mostly kept his mind on business and briefly fell out of touch with Bob McTavish. One afternoon, Nat Young drove his new Mercedes to Keo Surfboards just a day or so after the shop had taken a delivery of a dozen factory-fresh McTavish plastic machines. Nat Young walked in and froze for a moment at the sight of those weird-looking eight-foot surfboards. He was thrilled and a little angry, shouting, Why wasn't I told? to no one in particular. He stormed out. One week later, Young was on a plastic machine of his own design, turning harder than anybody, his reserves of aggression and power and stoke all fully 
topped off. American surfers, David, had no idea what Bob McTavish was doing. Along with Midget Farley and Nat Young, they were up on Sydney's northern beaches with no one in sight. Nose riding on a 9'6", 25-pound signature model was still the hot thing in California. At a surf contest in April of 67, David Nueva introduced a new wrinkle as he paddled tail first into a small wave, stood and deftly whipped the board around 180 degrees, then began his elegant cross-stepping walk to the nose. The shortboard had a quiet international debut in October of 67 when San Diego's Win and Sea Surf Club flew to Sydney to compete against a team of Australians. The visitors from San Diego, all on conventional longboards, were shocked to see what the Aussies were riding. The latest plastic machines were down to 7 feet 6 inches, and Wind and Sea were duly routed in the competition. Surfer Magazine ignored this Wind and Sea contest in Australia, however, and Plastic Machine, the movie, which was filmed during the contest in Sydney, didn't arrive in theaters until 1969. The shortboard's real coming out party, however, the one everyone remembered with the proper amount of noise and clamor, began just a few weeks after that Wind and Sea event at the start of the 67 and 68 Hawaiian winter. And I'll leave it there, David, and that is a lead into uh, some events that winter on the North Shore and at Maui's Honolulu Bay, which led to everybody going, okay, shortboard revolution, it's on. Mm -hmm. I hope that didn't bore you guys too much. No, I think there's a number of points that, um, talking points there. I think often design extremes, while they don't actually take hold, like in their own, like in the extreme version of it doesn't really take off. There's a version of it that we land on that has absolute applicability. And so we see this like with Brad Domke, right? Um, doing the board transfer at Jaws. Yeah. And you're just like, what the heck? What are you even thinking? That board looks, re that's definitely the wrong board to write out there. You can't, you shouldn't be skimming at Jaws. But at the same time, he's setting a new boundary that will lead to some sort of design evolution. Maybe Tom Curran's a better example where it's like he's adding a little bit of fins and he's modifying it slightly and he's getting an amount of speed that he's never had before and his feet are closer to the water than they've ever been before. So that will translate to an actual functional design. Right now, he's the only guy that can ride that. He and Domkey are the only guys who can ride that thing. But based on what they're doing, it inspires design to make progress. And so I think McTavish there, it's like, go way out on the edge and go do it on your own and go explore. It's what Laird Hamilton's been doing with stand-up paddle and the seated foil and a bunch of other things. Um, and then after you work out all the kinks, it ends up becoming a board that wins world titles, you know, and influences the broad market. Well, gosh, I don't know what the skimboard riding thing um as an extreme is going to lead to sort of in the middle or what will evolve from that. I mean, I could only think thinner rails and smaller boards, which, um, you know, we got away from and they're, and they can be difficult. I mean, they're, they're limited and you just don't catch that many waves. But then what about I um, think foiling? Actually, I wonder if, because those guys, it seems to me like current and we talked about this and in, in, in donkey, I mean, they're riding basically three feet, three, six, three foot, six inch skimboards, however big they are. Yeah. They're, so they're really close to the water. I talked to you about 
it seems like they just want to almost have just their feet yeah. as the planing surface. They're trying to get really close to just letting their feet be the only thing that's between the, the thing that's driving their turning. And, and they just want to get close to the water, which is ironically what really good nose riding is where you're, there's nothing between you and the water. You know, you're on the tip of the board and it feels like you're walking on water. And that could be the impetus for these guys going to these skimboards is just get as close to the water as they can because it frees up a lot of what you can do, right? Yeah, There's not this big nose in front of you. And the foil thing, those guys are now riding these like four foot and smaller um, boards that are real thick, but they're getting that lift. And once you got the lift and you're, the foil's in the water and that's what you're riding, I'm imagining that the sensation is similar to walking on water. I talked to um, Josh Martin about it because he was building boards. He's built a few of those foil boards for some of the guys at Hurley, yeah. Jeff Hurley or Ryan, Ryan Hurley. Or Ryan Hurley, yeah, I saw those. And um, yeah, they're they're less. They're like three and a half feet. I'm, I want to say maybe even three feet. And that's what Josh said. He's like, well, we're realizing you don't need board. Like all that mat. What really matters is the foil. You don't need any more surface of the board other than for your feet to be planted. And so, so we it's can about eliminate. How do you catch the wave at that point, right? Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt, but no, but you're right. I was talking to what caught my interest was that I was surfing with Joel Tudor the other day and he was talking about it and and he was saying the ideal place is in Hawaii. There's a bunch of places that that break pretty hard and then the whitewater sort of crumbles into a big hole, into a big channel. So they pick up after the wave breaks, they just pick up the whitewater on those three sixes they're pretty full. They're probably mm-hmm. five inches thick because, again, doesn't matter. Like we're just trying to it's just a, a vehicle to get to the foil, yeah. you know, to get get us to the place where we're now foiling. So they pick up the white water and away they go. And then they're off and running, you know, and um, that whole thing. The fact that Joel's intrigued by it, for one thing, kind of makes me think the foiling thing is it's going to take off. Like we're going to see some crazy stuff happen. We're Undoubtedly. just, we're just at the beginning of what's going to happen. I even told Joel, I, I was like, he's like, you should try it too. And I was like, I was more or less going, you know what? I'm just going to let you guys figure it out for five years. And once you get it, it's cause it's going to get so dialed in within five years that it'll be like kiting. Like you didn't want to be one of the pioneer kiters. You know, you had your arm ripped off by the ropes and stuff. Yeah. And now you can kite and it's all the safety features yeah. have been built into it. It's a good point. I, I would love to do it, but I don't feel a need to be on the cutting edge. And I also don't feel like I don't have enough time and I have enough boards in my quiver right now that I'm like satiated. I don't need to go out and add another thing because it's a different thing. But I think it's not it, surfing. I mean, it's a different thing entirely. It, it's it's swell riding, right? Yeah. I mean, there's but it I looks think, amazing. Like it still looks super a, yeah. fun. No, I, I think that as as the lineups get more crowded and you're one of those that's like, God, I just want to be by myself out here. And I think you're going to be able to get that feeling where you're riding waves and you're by yourself. And there's this real sense of isolation and individualism. And I'm not part of the herd, you know, with my gloves and my booties and my spring suit and my leash and my 11 foot soft top. And, you know, it's just, it's, it serves a purpose, but it's not the same purpose. And the other thing is, it's a different style of wave that you want to ride. So it For opens sure, up a great. bunch of new breaks. Yeah. yeah. And I, I'm suspecting that the sensation of riding a swell, I, I think you're going to get the same joy. Now, look, you're not going to get tubed. You know, it's, it is two well, different things. Maybe you get tubed. I don't know. But I think it's akin to like, I think it's like doing downwinders on a standup, but way better because you're way more connected for way longer. 
I bet they foil the Molokai channel. I bet somebody just foils it. Yeah. I think it's like, look, you can go hiking or you can go rock climbing. And they're not exactly the same, but they offer a very similar, I don't know, um, level of happiness or level of satisfaction or level of whatever in your body. They're both outside and they're both on a cliff or on the mountain, but they're slightly different. You know what I mean? So... I think you'll still have a desire to do both things. I mean, that part of me is intriguing. Like the part where David and Scott load up and go to like K37 and a half. Right. And, you know, a spot that is rarely served, but it opens, it offers these kind of open ocean swells and a big deep channel, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you're guaranteed there's no one going to be there. Like no one even wants it. No right. one's looking at it. And right. there's so many places, as you mentioned, like that, that it's it's kind of fascinating. I love it. Now I I'm love kind that. Of convincing myself, I should. Start. I love that aspect of it. It looks so exhausting too. I know. Well, they got to figure it out for us. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's exhausting because you're never getting a break. You yeah. never like with surfing, you kick out and you sit around as long as you want before you catch your next wave. With that, it's like this constant low center of gravity. You got to squat. And then you're pumping in between waves. Riding a wave, we know, is a leg burner. And then in between waves, you're pumping to get to the next one, which is even more of a leg burner. I know. It's these intense. little chicken legs can handle it. I don't... Dude, leg But day. you can just stop. You can just stop and take a break and then get up and go. Right. Yeah, That exactly. But you won't have chicken legs anymore. I don't know. You're going to be, be get all beefy, dude. <laughs> so my other thought with McTavish is um, I love the idea that in that day or up until, I don't know, 10 years ago, the world was isolated. You know, different countries didn't have communication with other countries rapidly anyways. Like it took time for ideas to spread. And now everything's homogenized. If something happens in Australia today that's innovative, we'll know about it. Some of the stuff that I think could be um, further explored with this is it's my belief that guys like Hank Warner and Skip Fry and guys that were on that trip, I believe, I believe Hank was on it. I'm positive Skip was on it. Those guys came back to San Diego and they were like, okay, let's make some shorter boards. Yeah. You know, like they were the first germination, although Greeno, of course, came from Santa Barbara. But that connection with San Diego and how and what happened with board design, did they adopt it? Did they not adopt it? You know. Of course, that whole thing took off pretty quick, so there wasn't much time to sort of secretly be going, hey, man, we're on to something and no one else knows about it, you know? And then the other interesting thing is the Vietnam War was going on, and Americans were taking furlough in Australia and coming back to Vietnam with eight-foot surfboards and going, wow, man. And other Americans were coming, going to Vietnam and going, what is this? Eight foot surfboard you have this. You know, we're all riding nine sixes in Hermosa Beach, you know. Mm. So there was that connection between Australia and the Vietnam War and American surfers being hip to it. Uh, the ones that that went, you know, there was quite a few that went on furlough to to uh, Australia and brought the shortboard back with them. They were right. blown away. They showed up at, on the beaches in Sydney and were like, "Oh my god, yeah. these guys are riding eight foot surfboards yeah. that only weigh fifteen pounds." Right. Interesting. The other thought I had about McTavish is. There's a lot of um, iconic and pioneering brands like from that era. You just named a few of them. Velzy, we mentioned previously, who haven't successfully transitioned into the digital era in terms of making their legacy brand 
market like profitable and all that stuff. Maybe the maybe they don't have kids, maybe kids didn't want to be involved in the business, whatever. It's a very difficult thing to transition a legacy brand into a viable business in the future. McTavish has done it really, really well. Their website, I remember Surf Stitch did a video with them a year ago or something, um, walking through the factory. The factory was super dialed. They had all these very modern designs. They had the throwback stuff that was really cool and legacy, and then they had all this super mod stuff. Their showroom, I think it's in Byron Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, amazing. Looks like an art gallery, you know, super. And then their website, everything. And then they have like a portion of their website that is all of their Instagram feed. And Instagram now has a function where you can actually link to a shopping, like a, a hyperlink to a yeah. URL on a website. I bought something recently doing that. Yeah. So yeah. like they have an entire wing of their website that's all their Instagram feed with the clickable link. So it's like, oh, you saw a guy walking down a beach with this surfboard in our Instagram. Click it and you could buy that surfboard right now. Um, so just like very, they've got whoever the young generation is in the McTavish family and you know, brand has done a phenomenal job of marketing and um, technical, the technical aspect of it to coordinate those two things. That era, like what brands really did good, especially just then, like within those five years, because, you know, Matt Warshaw does a great job later on here of explaining um, the struggle that there were showrooms in the South Bay, Manhattan Beach, Hermosa Beach, that whole Redondo that were just chock full of nine six nose riders and all of a sudden they no no kids wanted them anymore yeah and they didn't know what to do with them yep and there are some brands you know a brand that comes to mind for me is caster so caster started out as a longboard shaper bill caster he worked for olympic which was bobby i think it was bobby challenger's brand and some other guys maybe maybe um uh, cast maybe Phil Castagnola's brand. I'm not sure, but anyway, Bill Caster made longboards, but successfully made the transition to shortboards. GNS, Gordon and Smith, mm-hmm. they did the same thing. Um, Al Merrick, I don't know. Al, Al was probably all shortboards. I don't know if he started off in that longboard era, but a lot of those guys were production shapers now. Right. At like John Price's Surfboards Hawaii in Lacadia and. All of the, there was a lot of production guys, obviously, in South Bay where there was just a massive surfboard manufacturing industry. And a lot of those guys made the leap because they weren't names. They were just the production guy working. Yeah. And then they were they were all young. And so they're all hip onto the new eight-foot shortboard. And, right. Anyway. Yeah, um, interesting. I'll post that Surf Stitch video, by the way, on um, spitpodcast.com if anybody wants to check that out. I have a quick email. Can I quickly yeah, read this? of course. Hey, Scott, thanks for the film about the Vietnam surfers. I got one story to add to that. A lot of Americans don't know that almost 50,000 Canadians went down to the United States and joined the Marines. My buddy and surfer Dave did two tours of duty, got a Purple Heart, and came home to wander off and live on the beach in Tofino, British Columbia, here on Vancouver Island. Back then, it was the end of the earth. A bad logging road got you in. There were no restaurants, no hotels, nothing. He met some other Vietnam vets and they built a big three-story tree fort and hung out there and surfed for a few years. Anyways, I dragged his ass out there last year and took him surfing before he gets too old to do that. And he was like a teenager all over again. He loved it. It was epic. Anyway, I wish you knew this bit of Vietnam vet folklore for your next documentary. Sincerely yours, Jim Johnson. Amazing. Isn't that cool? That is amazing. Yeah. Could you imagine? 
living that lifestyle, dude, with the technology of wetsuits or the lack thereof. These guys were big, burly Vietnam, gnarly types, like Roger Erickson types. That is so gnarly. Yeah. Phenomenal. Um, Since we last met, there was that false alert in Hawaii about being missled. I had a bombed. friend that was in Hawaii when it went down, but go ahead. What is, what's his story? Was his story free? is he was there with his girlfriend, and there she was there on business, and she works for the Department of Defense, so she has one of those DOD Blackberries. So when the alarm started going off, they were on the 13th floor or whatever of a big hotel in Waikiki, in, yeah, Waikiki, and the alarm was going off, and people were freaking out, and she grabbed her Blackberry and was like, if it's on my BlackBerry, this is a DOD message. Like, this is not a test. This is this is happening. And their whole thing was, we're going to die. Like, th- there's nothing you can do. What are you going to do? Where are you going to go? So they figured, like, if we're going to die, let's die on the beach. Let's just go down to the beach and sit there and just... And they just basically kind of gave in and, and just were like, all right, well, we're just going to... And they were literally took pictures of themselves sitting on the beach in beach chairs, just kind of sunning and just being like, Here, you know, what are you going to do? Like wow. a nuclear blast is going to hit Hawaii. Wow. Would you rather die three months later from the radiation or instantly from a big, you know, boom? Wow. Yeah, he said it was gnarly. Way gnarlier. He said, oh, you, all you guys back here were making fun of it, but it was a really heavy scene when right. it was going down. When you put yourself in those shoes, it is super, number one, it's scary, but it's also kind of an interesting test. Like, what do you do? How do you spend your time? Who do you talk to? You yeah. Know? Like it's, they, fa- they it's fascinating. They themselves to death. Crazy. And then do you know what was the big reveal? Like what was the moment where it was like, oh no, false alarm. What, what happens then? Is it an adrenaline dump? Do you feel scared that you have to now live the rest of your life? Like what, you know? I guess it's hard to be mad. Right. Yeah, I suppose it would be. You got to be glad, but then you're mad. I would like to know if that all of the emotion and maybe gratitude you feel for loved ones in that situation, does that continue onward into your like new gift of life? Or do you instantly go back to your old cynical self being angry at the world? You know, was there a fall guy? Did somebody get fired? I don't sense that anyone. I mean, it's the state of Hawaii. It's just like everyone's got a job and everyone's like. Oh, big sorry, Brad. A mistake. You know, and it won't happen again. <laughs> like, did any? Did you see on the news anywhere where the governor governor resigned no. or the Department of Def, you know the I don't know the State Department of whatever no. safety? Did anybody get fired? Because if they did, they would have held them up nice, high, and proud in the media on CNN and said, "Look, here's our fall guy. Right. It won't happen again. We fired him. We got it fixed." Right. I never saw that guy or that girl sort of paraded around as. I don't think any. Don't, do you think somebody should have? Maybe they did. Maybe somebody got fired. I don't know. But you know, if, I don't do you know. Think it's worthy of you would, of a firing. The the initial answer is absolutely yes. But well, I, yeah, if not I, that, how? What? Well, I don't really know what went wrong. Like I didn't follow the news story to even know like what the detail was. Is it is it one person's responsibility or did this? Did they view it as an imminent threat and they? made the right decision by warning everybody, you know, was there maybe the person? No, who no, made... it was literally a push of a button. Like there was no threat. There's somebody like accidentally oh, pushed the button. Once they realized that oh. the button had been pushed, they're like, Oh no, what do we do? Okay. And they had no protocol, no contingency to fix it right away. Yeah. And they all scrambled around and went, what do we do? And the, the governor found out and then the governor couldn't find his password to Twitter so that he could send out a false alarm. Oh thing. man. And then, 
they had to upload the messaging in the TXT in the text software code that you write. They had to they didn't have that written yet. They right. had to write it and then upload it and yeah. send it and you know, 38 minutes later, people are right. like, what? Okay, yeah. some Fire somebody for sure. Yeah. <laughs> fire a couple somebody, people. Somebody, right? I mean... <laughs> Multiple people, dude. Or, you know. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. Free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So um, my favorite thing that I saw about all of this was on Twitter. This guy only has like 300 followers, but this ended up getting like 35,000 likes because it was so <laughs> classic. Um, his handle is Hoku Palm. And he said, I was surfing when the missile alert went off and a guy with an Apple watch got a call from his wife telling him to come back. And I kid you not, he said, let me die without you nagging me. Then hung up and caught the fattest wave of the morning. <laughs> oh my God, that's sad. Isn't that great? That's, that's sad. <laughs> um, oh, I thought it was so good because it's like, it's answering the question of what would you do with your time? And his answer was, I'm not spending it with my wife. <laughs> oh my <God. laughs> like, I believe this is a threat and I'm going to stay out here. That's and surf. really fascinating. What would you do? Would let you go me, surfing? Would, let me die without honey. you nagging me. And then hung up and caught the fattest wave of the morning. <laughs> I also love that he called it the fattest wave. <laughs> P-H-A-T or? No. <laughs> wow. Isn't that good? So I listened to the grit with stab and oh man i'm sure you're over it as frankly i am too i don't have the um strong emotions that i had about it then but i haven't really talked about it with anybody well i mean i just it's it sort of was um it got built up with a lot of hype and it kind of didn't live up to the hype in my opinion yeah um and you know who won the debate I don't think there was any winners. I agree. I, I think there were, you know, I like Chaz and I like Ashton and, um, you know, I, I, I frankly don't, don't want to talk about it too much because I don't think it's too much of a story. Yeah. Really? Um, but, and I don't think that, I don't think that the beach grit attacking stab or the inertia or I would agree with Ashton that, 
it's not something that I care to like click on and read about, you know, it's kind of like, it's gotten a little old and I don't think it's, I don't think there's that much fascination with surf media because Ashton's kind of right in that surf media isn't journalism. Those are two totally separate things. Surf media is on this earth for one reason, one reason only, and that's to market surfing. And if you're not marketing surfing, if you're not selling surfing, then you're not in the surf media business. Right. You might now you might be in the journalism business and that's totally separate. And you and I talked about this last time and you might want to go investigate some serious stuff in within the surf culture that makes sense, like Fukushima and what's happening with the water quality there. And there's a myriad of different great topics that you could touch on as a journalist and try to go sell those stories to somebody like Outside Magazine or People Magazine or whoever, the Wall Street Journal. But, you know, I think it's important that the one takeaway that I got is that it's important that we distinguish those two things that surfer and stab and frankly, beach grit and a lot of outlets. If if you're going to call yourself surf media, your whole purpose, if you're trying to make money. Is to market surfing. That's what you do. Well, that's what the current model is. That's not what we should aspire to. I oh, agree. None of those businesses. You're not aspiring to surf media. Whatever you're no, aspiring I think, to is something completely different but than if, quote unquote the term surf media. Currently. But if there's surf journalists in the future, there aren't now, but if there are in the future, yes. they would st- still fall under the umbrella of surf media. Who's going to hire them? Well, that okay. So that's a whole different conversation. But I agree with you. We have... We have a need for it. None of those organizations call themselves surf journalists. Yeah, and, and I, I and I think that there should be surf journalists. I agree. Obviously, the model doesn't support it currently. Right. right. We got that understood. Neither and has the, it ever. No, it never has. Right. But so I think surf in the future media it can. Does not include Cur- surf journalism currently. It has never currently. And it has never. No. And so that's my point is that surf media, in Agreed. my opinion, will forever just be not forever. If you're in surf media, you're you're putting out content and you're doing it in hopes of getting the surf media to jump in and support your content via dollars. Yeah, but I don't think that's a forever model. I, I think it, it's a very limiting model. I think if you're going to stay within that, surfing will only grow to a certain level to appeal to a certain number of people. Right, which I if would we had true... it has, and it, maybe it's topped out, but go ahead. Yeah, I don't think it has. I think that there's... So you think that at some point, surf media, the, the, the business of marketing surfing is going to allow for journalists to come in and attack the very people that are paying. Well, that's what... they will be paid by outside sources. Oh, well, then that's not within the surf media. That's are that's we are we are thing. we considered surf media? You and I No. Why not? We're not paid by surf media. I mean, you don't not, think our not, listeners view us as part of the surf media? I don't know what they how they view us. I'm telling you that you and I put out content that isn't supported by the surfboard industry, by the surf industry at all. So you think the definition of media has to do with surf, who's paying the surf bills. media? You surf think the definition media. of media has to do with who's no, paying no, the not bills. media, surf media, surf media. Yeah, I disagree fundamentally. Like, I don't, I think we are surf media. I think blogs that have a following that write about it and don't get paid are still part of surf media. I would suggest to you that we put out surf content and and maybe you don't like the phrase surf media. Maybe, maybe, maybe I do you're like right. The phrase. Maybe you're right. Maybe we are surf media. What I'm trying to suggest is that the people that are paying the bills for content in the surf world, like the Hurleys, 
the billabongs, the quicksilvers, whoever it is, right? These these people that want to lift up surfing because it's good for their business. Those are the ones paying the bills for STAB, for yeah. instance. They're not going to be happy if somebody comes in and does an expose on... Obviously. Right. And so, guess what? STAB's not going to run that article because yeah. that would be biting the hand that feeds you. And so that's all I'm suggesting is that... Well, we know that. We know that. We know that's what's happened before. And I'm saying that model is very limiting. I agree. And be, I'm, and, not, I'm supportive of this model. I'm just saying that I'm trying to, I'm trying to create clear defined parameters so that everyone can kind of understand. And, and maybe I've failed in doing that. No, you, you've succeeded in it, but we've talked about it over the years a lot. What I'm saying is there's a lot room for a lot of stories that want to be told that aren't being told. And guys like you and I have the opportunity to do that. And if we take the endemic dollars, then we will be beholden to that exact model. Right. That At that point, before. in my opinion, we will so, be surf media. Yeah. Right now, we're no, no, no. surfing I'm saying content, we're, we're surf no. blog, we're surf journalists, we're, we're surf... Um, provocateurs no. but i don't think we're surf media and i'm just trying and i don't care one way or the, like i'm not i'm just trying to create something that we can both agree on so we can both continue this discussion you know because if we don't agree on but so what i'm trying to get at is if you're getting paid by endemic you're what let's let's call it something we don't have to call it surf media let's call it something else but i just want to make sure that we understand that that's that and this thing over here is totally different than that Look, what do you call if, it when you get paid by endemic? The endemic marketplace. I, I don't paying think, you. No, to, no, no. I think you're defining it. You're mischaracterizing it. Who's paying the bill doesn't define your job and what you do. Oh, it does. It dic well, it dictates the content. Right. But it doesn't. Exactly. If you point, that's exactly my point. Yeah, I know. That but that doesn't make you now media or not media. If you're out reporting on things and telling stories, Great. you are part of the media. Who funds the bills? Dude, what if Toyota came in tomorrow? They're non-endemic. Right. And started paying you and I sponsor dollars on this show. That now makes us not media because no, we're no, taking no, money no, from I agree. Toyota. I'm, I, I want to get away from the semantics of it. I, we'll call it whatever you want. But I think it's important that we un, that you and I understand it so that we can continue the discussion so that we don't continue to stumble on this. Like, yeah. what do you want to call it when the endemic marketplace is supporting the content that you're putting out? Well, it dictates the content. But right. it doesn't change the fact that they're a media outlet. Well, okay. so my point is, is that if Quicksilver's paying for us to do the podcast, guess what we're not going to do? Tell bad stories about Quicksilver. Right. Yeah, of course. Right. Exactly. Of course. So what do you call that? Well, look, Fox News has a very political agenda. Totally agree. But they're still media. Right. So that's what I'm saying is we're well aware I agree. that let's, STAB okay, is so funded by NBC. But what do you NBC want to call it when... It's all media. I mean, if they're telling I, stories and reporting, it's all media. Yeah, but Surf they're media. not telling all the stories that we want to be told. Fox like, News isn't telling all the stories I that agree. you want to be told, I, but they're I, still I, media. So I agree. Okay. I'm trying to get beyond this so we don't get <laughs> in this. Well, okay. I agree. So back to Chaz and, and Ashton. I don't think they're doing the same thing at all. Like, STAB is generating unique content they're creating stuff they're creating videos they're creating one-of-a-kind pieces so they're doing their own thing beach grit is doing something entirely different they don't generate unique content they write stories about things that are happening they make fun of other publications so to me they're doing very different things and there's a need for both you know what i mean i'm not doubting that so either. i i think in regard to their discussion I, I believe, like I would like to believe, I guess, that everybody's in on the joke together. Like whenever Chaz was making fun of um, Stab previous to us having this, quote, debate, 
I thought it was all in fun. Like I thought the guys at stab at the end of the day and even Zach over at the inertia in my mind, I'm like, well, everybody, we can all get together. If we all see each other, we'll all get together and like cheers and have a laugh about it because there's no way that the people at stab are getting their feelings hurt by what Chaz is saying. Right. Cause it's all in jest. Turns out they're getting their feelings hurt, you know, which was kind of shocking to me. And I feel like, Hey man, you guys shouldn't even acknowledge Chaz's existence. Like he's punching up, trying to get your attention. Keep your head down. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't even let it bother you because you guys are killing it. You guys are doing really cool stuff. The dock, stab in the dark, all that stuff's amazing. Chaz is just slinging mud trying to get you to, to fight back because it actually validates his existence. If you then chime in, don't chime in, you know? So for the record, Ashton is the one who wanted to make this discussion happen. So I was like, yeah, I think I'll reach out to Chaz and see what Chaz and Chaz of course is like, absolutely. And so I thought that there was a lot of opportunity to have like a real debate and discussion for the exact thing that you're talking about, which is endemics kind of endemic brands influencing the content and stories not being told and shutting off the comments on certain comment section or deleting comments off the comment section. Or like I've, I've written a comment on Stab's Instagram, which was in reference to their caption that they wrote on something. And then 20 minutes later, notice they changed the caption. They went and edited the caption. So it now makes my comment irrelevant, like things like that. It's just like, dude, that's shady. You shouldn't be, you know? So those are the discussions I wanted to be Why having. Why is that shady? Well, they did what you wanted them to do. No, no, no. I wasn't reprimanding them. Uh, I was saying it's neither okay. here nor there kind of. Okay. So my point is I wanted to have like real debate about the way that surf media is highly influenced by those things and how you guys, yeah, all the, all these I just, certain I things. Just question, and the, I just don't think that they're, I guess I'm having, a, my thing is journalism is over here. Yes. Not, in, none inve of Investigative journalism yeah. over here and none of very, very rarely, if at all, does investigative journalism, which is really all we are in, interested in. It's not all I'm interested in. Well, it's one thing I'm interested it in. It never, it never makes its way into it this doesn't. thing that we call, that we, you and I have failed to establish a name for yet. And you, I was calling it surf media, but you don't like that. No, it is surf media. That's my so point. I, my point is investigative journalism, like good reporting, good yeah. stuff, doesn't find its way into this umbrella known no, as surf media. It hasn't. And it's because... What's running surf? What's the engine behind surf media? Absolutely, it's endemic. Yeah, and so, but neither of those guys report, or they don't claim to be journalists. I agree. I'm just yeah. saying that the reason it doesn't interest me is that if yeah. you don't know that this is just a big marketing machine, exactly. If you think if you're disappointed that they're not doing a story on Quicksilver's, you know, merger with Billabong and how it might, it's because well, why bite the hand that feeds you? And like that exactly. shouldn't upset you. Like, no. And it upsets Chaz, or not, maybe not upsets him, but he was like, he wrote but, five or six articles in a row. Like, how come they haven't done a story on? Because that's what the they way, do. For, that's what his website does. Is they? No, pull, I get that. Yeah, but, exactly. But my point is, if you want to, that whole story, Quicksilver and Billabong and all that, that belongs in a business journal. That's a right. trans world business story. That's yeah. not stab story. I don't want to go to stab and read some boring thing about shareholders. Right. I don't give a shit. Right. I'll go to trans world business for that. Yeah. I'm surprised Ashton didn't bring that up. That's not their space. Right. Yeah. So my, that's my point is like Ashton shouldn't even care what Chaz is saying. Chaz is saying it because that's what Beach Grit does. They poke fun and they gossip and stuff. So Chaz, Ashton should just keep his head down and his blinders on and just be like, yeah, I don't even care. You know so what I mean? And I think he has since then. 
I think I asked you, but yeah, nobody won. Nobody won the debate. No, nobody won the debate. It devolved. But here's the other. So while I said I would like to think that everybody's in on the joke, I was shocked to see how emotional they were. And that was evident was they both have very personal feelings about one another and about their work that they've done in the past together or whatever. And that all came out. And I don't think very many people care. I think there may be 15 or 20 people that give a crap about Ashton and Chaz's feelings towards each other. And it's so under the under Main Street of Disneyland. Except I'll tell you what. Um, it was highly viewed. Hi, the, highly viewed and then highly commented on. So what was the majority of the comments? Tell me about. Okay. Majority of the comments, I would say. 45% said Ashton won, Chaz is a douche. 45 <laughs> said Chaz won, Ashton is a douche. Yeah. And then 8% said nobody won, this was a scourge. And then 2% was like, that was the greatest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> um, but I will say that an average Beach Grid article maybe gets between 20 and 60 comments. Yeah. There was six articles written about this, all with 200 plus comments. So to say nobody cares is maybe what people care about is drama. People love yeah, drama. Exactly. People love sensation. Exactly. And this was, it was dramatic. Drama. And yeah. from my from my stance, I was like, look, uh, I these guys have been a part of the work that I've created. Like I've interviewed both of them, Chaz and and I obviously do a show together. So this is an ongoing conversation and they want to have a conversation together. I'm going to go ahead and facilitate that. And then when it devolved into what it devolved into, I was like, look, this is reality. It's ugly, but these guys are wearing their heart on the sleeve on their sleeve and they're getting into the nitty gritty and media or whoever doesn't really, they always shy, surf media shies away from this sort of thing. I'm not going to shy away from it. And my listeners want to know, and we advertised it in advance and I'm not going to edit it out. I cleared it with both of them in advance. I'm like, I'm not going to edit this out because I don't care if it's ugly. It's okay. It's okay to be ugly. It's okay to have fights. It's okay to wear your heart on your sleeve. If it makes Chaz look bad, that's something for him to deal with. If it makes that, that's something for him to deal with. As long as again, they both approved it going out there. But I'm not going to shield my listeners from the ugliness of it. Let them. And if they're if they're 20 minutes in and they decide this sucks, by all means, shut it off. You know what I mean? And, and I, I should probably let the listeners know, too, that um, I reached out to you like as it was happening. And you're like, oh, my God, dude, I got to get back to you. It's gnarly. There was a fight, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I was I was as excited as any of these listeners or any of yeah. these readers of beach grid or stab that there was drama. Like yeah. I was like, really? Oh my God. You know, and I, I had to call you 15 times yeah. and I called Ashton 15 times and you know, so I I'm guilty as charged. Like I, I, I fed into the drama yeah. of it, you know, I was like, Oh my God, really? Wow. What happened? You know, but I felt kind of bad for Ashton. I, I felt like, um, I wish that Ashton didn't bite the hook. It just seemed like Ashton shouldn't have been Ashton should not engage. Yeah. Ashton's doing great work. Exactly. And he needs to keep doing great work. Exactly. And if any of this negativity deters him from doing great work, then that bums me. But out. I felt like he was kind of he was kind of there on behalf of Rory and some of those other guys that came from the beach grid and now work at Stab and are getting attacked. I almost felt like he was kind of like the big brother and he was there going, hey, it's not cool for you to be a dick to these guys because they looked up to you at, at one point and now and you're you know and i think that 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 there's some truth to that and maybe there's some some maturity that that can be 
you know, yeah, that needs to be thought about. Maybe. Well, for my part in it, I believe that it's a great learning experience. All three of us kind of, I think, can revisit that and see where it went wrong, but also see what the strength is. And I think for chat, like for Ashton, it is what you said. It's kind of like, well, I don't need to engage with haters. Like you do the things you do in your life for the people who get it, not for the people who don't get it. And by all, you don't think every single media personality out there has haters? Absolutely all of them do. The most successful ones have the most haters. So you don't pay attention to that. You just keep moving forward. And then from Chaz's part, I feel like, and this is something that I've tried to communicate with him is in private is like, you do great work. You're a good writer. You have very compelling things to say. Also, criticism has a place in surfing and nobody is really um, taking that. Nobody want, Or nobody is actually tr- taking that mantle and trying to be a critique of things. That's something that is wide open that you could do really well. But also, you're just a great writer and a great storyteller. So I think that Chaz's worst work is when he's strictly poking the bear and making fun and slinging mud. And it's funny occasionally, but I think that energy would be better devoted to actually, you know, writing or critiquing. I think there's a way to critique without slinging mud. And so I would like for him to look at this and be like, okay, it's fun to do that at times, but I could also elevate my game by devoting my energy in these directions, you know? So I think everybody can come out of this learning something and being better for it, period. And then for me, I'm looking at it going, this debate format is phenomenal. Like we could, and it doesn't need to devolve into that, that it could have been a much better conversation, obviously, but we could have debates about hand shaping versus machine shaping. We could have debates about... um the Asian import market for surfboards versus American made, you know, like there's a lot of conversations that I, I don't even need to be, my voice doesn't need to be a part of. We just put two guys in a room and let them debate it Yeah, as a podcast platform. Yeah. It's a good one. Like there's a, there's a lot to learn there. Yeah. So, uh, interesting. Leashes or no leashes. Discuss. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously. I can see that could be one. Um, by the way, my friend, I got to throw a, a plug in, and I'm, I'm and I, I'm not getting anything for this, but this guy's a good friend of mine, Anthony Marcotti. He just, um, he and his team just uh, launched a new travel surf travel company called Wave, World Wave Expeditions. WorldWaveExpeditions.com. Perhaps you and I can actually get something out of this. Maybe they'll give us a trip where we can have a a radio trip that we hook been... it up, Marcotti. Jeez. So anyway, Anthony's. I don't know if you know Anthony well, but he's a good buddy of mine. I surf with him. I play golf with him a lot. And um, he's the founder and partner and booking and marketing manager for Kandui Resort, which is one of the most successful surf resorts in the world. So he's been in this for um, 20 years. WorldWaveExpeditions.com. If you want a high-class outfit with insane customer service, I highly suggest my buddies service and again i'm not getting shit out of this i wish i was um i have a couple of conversations scott in the realm of surf competition wsl dahui vulcan pie pros coming up all that sort of stuff yeah um this was a listener submitted question i'd like to hear your take on it said they said um why does the wsl promote so much non-wsl surfing through their social channels and i thought that was actually an interesting question because the wsl doesn't allow their competitors to compete in non-WSL sanctioned events, yet they will post 
surf videos of tons of non-WSL surfers on their social media all day long. And so that, for me, the question isn't so much about whether they, whether that's ethically okay or justifiable. The question for me is, you guys should only be elevating Joel Parkinson and Mick Fanning and the guys who are on your tour. Like, let your feed elevate those guys and build them up. If you are posting a video of Mick Fanning doing something and then 20 minutes later posting some, you know, non-WSL surfer from the middle of nowhere doing something that's actually gnarlier, it kind of diminishes Mick's value to a certain extent. You are showcasing guys who aren't even in your realm. And so I, I then look at, does the UFC post a bunch of videos of non-UFC fighters on their feeds? No, they definitely don't. Does the NFL post a bunch of videos of a backyard football game of guys with a great tackle? No, not really, you know? So it's an interesting question. Yeah, the WSL is slowly becoming, um, not slowly becoming, they have become, in my opinion, they're just a great surf content provider. That's how they see themselves. They have this umbrella, which is, you know, the world's surfing league, and under that umbrella fall many things, you know, the big wave tour, the longboard tour. And one of those things is, by the way, we create content, man. That's what we're, we're they basically are, are, um, are sort of like in competition with Surfline, with Stab, with Magic Seaweed, with all of, well, they, yeah, Magic Seaweed is owned by Surfline. But you know, my point is, all they're doing is going, come to us for content. Come to us for content. And should they be promoting Joel Parkinson? Well, Joel Parkinson's team promotes that stuff, and please send it to us because we want to put it out. You're one of our guys. We glad. Oh, by the way, you're going to want to send it to us because we have tons of viewership on our Facebook page or wherever, Instagram or whatever. So I just see them as a content uh, aggregator. They're they're they just put out content. Man. See, I I think that they that is true to an extent, but I think that their whole model is based on owning the content. So they do want to sell you that content and want you to view it if they own it. What I think the issue is, is if they're promoting, let's say it's Dylan Longbottom getting an insane barrel at Shipsterns, and then next week the Red Bull does a Cape Fear event, that's a competing brand, that's a competing entity and a contest that actually Dylan is going to go surf in next week. Now you just promoted what is ostensibly your competition. Yeah, you know, it's kind of it's kind of like if you have a restaurant on a busy street and you're getting pretty good traffic at your restaurant and then there's two other restaurants that pop up on your street, all of a sudden you get more traffic at your restaurant because everyone comes to that street to eat. To an extent. I'm just using it as a metaphor. If you're only two or three restaurants on the street, you are definitely competition. But if you're going and buying a restaurant or renting a leasing a space in downtown Disney, you're doing it to benefit from all the traffic that that is generating. I think the question is, then if that is true, what you're saying, then why not let John John go surf the Red Bull Cape Fear event? If you're all you're doing is trying to elevate one they you have to maintain the integrity of your league. If you just let your athletes go out wherever, then all of a sudden you've watered down your league. Your right. league doesn't mean shit. Any John John can surf down the street at my Keiki Classic or whatever, you know. Yeah, yeah. So you got to maintain the integrity of your athletes in your league. And that's the answer to that. But look, they're just growing the pond. Their feeling is if the pond on our site, if we can put out as much content as possible as long as it meets our level of, you know, quality, we're going to do it. Because we want Scott and David to come look at our site and not only get killer WSL action, but see the gnarliest Nazir thing that just happened or what you know, whatever it is, the content du jour. Yeah. 
Uh, did you watch the backdoor shootout? The Dahui backdoor shootout? Isn't that, hasn't that been over for the super long time? I did watch it. It's been it. over for a week. I know Jamie won it. I watched some clips of it. It was insane. How'd you watch it? I watched some of it on off of Surfline's feed. I think Surfline had a link to it, and yeah. I watched some of it. And the YouTube feed. YouTube Live. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't we discuss this already, or did I talk with this about somebody else? Uh, it was probably somebody else. We on air talked about they ran the first day, which was like the SUPs and like the uh, bodyboard maybe. There was – this is last time we talked. I go, what is the North Shore surfing competition scene going to look like if the WSL leaves? And the reason I brought that up is because right now this I is know. what it looks like. I know it looks like Dahui backdoor shootout. Right, and it's it's sort of charming and fascinating from a local cultural perspective on one hand, at least the bro- the broadcast I'm talking about. But at certain point, I think there was literally a 30 or 45 second spiel that one of the guys gave that I did not even understand. I did not understand what he said. I was like, and again, that's sort of charming because the local dialect was yeah, undecipherable. Exactly. The Argo, it was just, it, you know, it was, and they were attacking the WSL pretty aggressively. Yeah. Which I thought was, that's so lowbrow. Hmm. Like you have an opportunity to just not even acknowledge them. And they really wanted to to attack the WSL. And and it seemed like their format, this format is like, hey, we're going to go to 12 because 10 is too confusing. We can't seem to handle 10 isn't enough because then somebody gets a crazier wave. Well, that's so we why need to- he's limited at eight. <laughs> what about eight? What's wrong with eight? How about eight? And then if you need to go to 10, you go to 10. I know. It's silly. I, so, I like it in a sense. I like it. I well, like that I mean. they're it's, bucking the trends. Some of it's charming. Yeah. But the whole format to me seems to lend itself to, hey, we all really know who the best guy is. And let's make sure we massage the outcome so that the best guy wins. Yeah. Like that guy was the winner. Yeah. You know, it was Jamie O'Brien. Right. Well, you know, what's funny. It reminds me of, I don't know, in business or something, some new guy comes in and he's just like, I'm going to revolution a consultant. I'm going to come in. I'm going to revolutionize the business. You guys need flair and you need to do this and you need to do that. And then you realize after you get through, I don't know, this event, you go, oh, well, structure was in place for a reason. You know, like yeah. this did not run super successfully. Yeah. Uh, they ended up not finishing the event because the conditions got so marginal and they were at the end of the waiting period that they just called it. They called off the rest of the event and go, Jamie's kind of, he gets the performer of the event award. That's first prize. Here you go, Jamie, performer of the event, um, which it's lackluster. It's anticlimactic for the viewer. And by the way, it's almost unviewable for the viewer because it was on a YouTube live stream with not without replays that we're used to with um, the commentary that you're talking about without live scoring. There was no scoring on the screen. So you see a guy get a wave and hopefully the commentators let you know what his score was. Lots of times they don't. You don't know who's winning a heat. You can't hear the buzzers. So it's not a great viewing experience. And then there's a lack of a climax with not finishing the event. So while we can kind of criticize the WSL for ways that they've done things, they've created a structure that certainly makes it a viewable experience, you know? Yeah. This, this felt like a local event. It was a local event. They sort of announced it as a local event, but they Which want is super cool, but, but it seems like they, they want international eyeballs on it and international eyeballs are discerning. And we're sort of going to demand at the very least that you put out a quality product, quality product. Yeah. There's a lot of things we would demand 
you know, like just put out a quality broadcast. They They didn't even have a website. You know what I mean? So it's like the next day I want to see who won which heats yesterday and I can't. So there's and that. maybe they don't care, and, and that's fine too. Maybe they're just like, "Hey, man, this is the way we do it, and we don't maybe care. So. And we're not looking for big sponsor dollars." But, but it, it does kind of lead us into a bigger question, which is, what will it look like North Shore Surfing competitively if and when the WSL leaves? And it's, it's if it's. It's it's interesting. Let me just say that it's going to be interesting. It, it, it might not look much different than what we saw for a long, long time. I agree. Unless um, some major shifts occur. Well, so you guys in the booth, you can criticize the WSL all you want, but I'll tell you what: show me a better model and then execute it. Because yeah, at least for the WSL, they're, they've set a good foundation. Sure, absolutely, there needs to be changes. Yeah, and they've made changes to their credit. Yeah. They've massaged it, and they're getting there. They always do. But to just come in and just like it's just hard to. I think the international audience is going to demand. We have demanded a little bit better quality product. Like, if it's, if it's local event, okay, it's a local event. Just don't show it to everybody because we're going to demand just some. That's the problem. Is this is all coming from a place of we want to watch it. Hey guys, yeah. you're telling us this is happening. We, have we want to see it. Yeah. Show us something. Yeah, and they've got us. Like we want to watch. Totally. I want to watch Tony totally. Doctor Shoot. I want it. Of course, but. Yeah. Well, so Renato Hickel did an interview with a Brazilian website. Moist is the name of the website. <laughs> Everybody's like spit, spit, moist. Everybody's lubricate. least favorite word. Moist. moist. Um, and he, Warm and moist. He revealed a couple of details about the upcoming season. This is not at all um, the WSL's stance. This is Renato's personal opinion. And he said trestles will likely return in 2019 as a QS 10,000 event. Yeah. Um, which I, I thought I was like, Oh, Tristle is going to return. I was excited. And it's like, as a QS 10,000, I think it warrants a place on tour, except that Karamas could be a good replacement for it. Uh, he said that this pay-per-view model that you and I have talked, have actually championed for a long time. We, when you and I talked about it, we were like, look, we'll give you, we would pay 60 bucks a year to watch all the WSL content. That way they don't have to worry about finding sponsors and changing venues when they don't have a sponsor, blah, blah, blah. Well, he said that this pay-per-view model would actually let the events still be free. But if you're paying the premium, you get premium content. I saw this and and he announced some of the premium content was like backstage interviews. I'm not all that impressed with their backstage interviews. Would you be bummed if you missed the backstage interviews? No, I think he just said that kind of off the cuff. But I think the idea of having uh, premium Back, premium access. content that was actually worth watching. Wasn't there replays involved in that? Or like you, to, pay, to get the replays, you have to pay or something? Oh, maybe. That might be worth paying for. I think that they should just come in. I guess they don't want to lose the guy that wants it for free. So they're like, okay, look, there's two different models. There's two different guys here. Yeah. There's Scott and David who will pay. Yeah. And then there's, you know, Johnny angry guy over here who can't believe that we're asking for money. Yeah. So let's appease them both. But I'm just hoping that the pay model provides some really, like, I feel good about paying for it. I'm like, absolutely. I can't believe I would never watch it for free. The pay model is so much worth. It's so totally worth it. I, I so think, there better be yeah. a pretty good premium. I think they'll work that out. Yeah. I think they need to. We're telling them right now. Yeah. Make the premium insane so that the. 
the free guy is going, oh, really? You, you got replays? I don't get replays. Or, you know, or Surf- something like that. Like, so I feel like it's worth my money. Surfline's done it very, very successfully. They have. 30 second know? free viewing. And then, yeah. But that's not going to work. on the, But that's well, the but, idea. The idea yeah. is you feel good paying the premium. When people don't have premium Surfline, I'm like, what? Why wouldn't you pay 68 bucks or whatever it is? Yeah. It's ridiculous. Like it's, it's pennies on the day. It's, yeah. it's stupid. Yeah. Um, the Vulcan Pipe Pro starts on January 29th, so five days from now. Cool. So that's super excited, or super exciting, and we finally have gotten waves in Hawaii. Is it's that a, a QS 10,000? What is the? It's definitely a QS event. I don't know what. It, I, I would imagine it would have yeah. to be a 10,000. Yeah, it's got to be for sure. Um, and then the wave of the winter stuff, like so, slow season for Hawaii up until the last week or two. But now we're seeing tons of stuff. Have you? Do you follow the oh, wave yeah. of the winter stuff at all? Yeah, yeah. Um, Nathan Florence's back door. That one's I don't mental. know if you saw that yeah. thing. Multiple sections, like yeah. so crazy. Yeah, it's hard to define what should win when you're looking at back door versus Jaws, for example. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, which wave is gnarlier? Like, yeah. it's, they're incomparable, uncomparable. Well, you bring up Jaws. Is this a good time to bring up some of the drama that's been taking place there? You bring it up. I want to know. Tell well, me everything. Obviously, they had one of the gnarliest days ever there last week. I think By the it was way, last Tuesday and Wednesday. Vulcan Pie Pro is a QS 3000, not a 10,000. Mm-hmm. $75,000 price purse. All right. Gnarliest day of days. Yeah. Last Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, I guess it was a week ago today. Um, it might have been Monday. Anyway, it was last week when we had the big waves up and down the northern hemisphere, the North Pacific provided. And and it was really big out at Mavericks and or at Jaws. And there was a bunch of people at Jaws, a bunch of surfers. So Albie Layer was a little disappointed with the amount of people in the water versus the amount of rescue skis versus the guys on skis that are just taking photographs. So Albie posted a great picture, and this is what he said on his Instagram. After today's jaw swell, a rant is currently needed, and I'll be the guy. Again, even though all the surfers I respect agree with most of these points, I'm going to be the guy. The water safety thing is ridiculous. The fact that photographers are willing to give more money for a photo than surfers for their safety is ridiculous. That sentence is kind of ridiculous. but What he means is that the people on skis are being paid by photographers more than they're being paid by the surfers in the water to cover their safety. Right. So the photographers can sit there and take photos from the channel. He goes on to say, we need to find a way to put surfers in contact with water safety and maybe a GoFundMe site or something so that they can be bought out by photographers. In other words, all the skis in the water are there for safety and not for photos. David, as you mentioned, there are a lot of great water safety teams here. But after years of saving random people for no reason, it makes sense they would rather hang in the channel making $600 cruising around with a photographer. A couple of things. We know less than we think about forecasting. Jaws isn't a tow wave anymore on glassy days. With 60 surfers, there were two hired, only two hired safety guys and about 15 skis driving photographers. This is absolutely unacceptable and we need to find a way to fix it. And by the way, Albie put that in all caps. Also, there was a lot more balls than brains out there. And later on, he added pragmatically, let's work together to fix this because it puts everyone in danger, including those of us who hire water safety. So 
I've got some remarks to that that came through on his Instagram, but do you have any thoughts first? I agree with the sentiment. Um, I wouldn't sh- throw any shade at the photographers who are paying for the ski. Like that's their job. And that's, yeah. And like if the, the ski driver, by the way, just cause you own a ski doesn't mean that you're interested in rescuing people out of the depths of jaws. You know what I mean? So like that ski driver has a wife and kids maybe and a family and he doesn't want to put his life in danger. He wants to sit in the channel with a photographer making the 600 bucks. So I don't have any problem with that. It's an enterprising market and they're servicing a need, you know? Okay. Hold that thought. Cause this, okay. One guy chimes in. I'd like to mention the basic rule of the sea. It includes jet skis and was mentioned at our Coast Guard class. It states basically that a boater must, and I repeat, must come to the aid of someone in distress. This would include anyone on a ski with a photographer. Now, you might be able to say you didn't want to endanger yourself by going after a swimmer in the middle of a set. But once the set has passed through, you must render assistance. I'm not a lawyer, but I know this from years of towing, sailing and boating. If someone drowns and you made no attempt to rescue them, you could be held liable, especially if you're taking money for hire without a captain's license. The Coast Guard does not mess around. So that's interesting what you just said. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, So then it becomes a question of if you're surfing out there, how uh, do you have the finances to hire a safety team or pool your finances with your buddies to hire a safety team? And if you don't, you're putting your life in your own hands by going out there without that. If you're doing it expecting that Albie Layer's safety team is going to then rescue you when he's on a bomb out the back putting his life in peril and his team is preoccupied, then that's pretty irresponsible. So I think the onus is on the surfer themselves to provide their own safety, you know, or to cover cover their own. Okay, butt. so Matt Kinoshita, a guy you and I both know, great shaper from Maui, Kazuma Surfboards, he put this on the on this same Instagram post. Safety skis are there for those who hire them. You paddle out at your own risk and you can't expect anyone to save you unless you have planned ahead. It's simple. Can't handle it yourself, then you should not be out there. I feel bad for those on skis risking their lives and money to save someone that should not have been out there. The truth is that the guy on the ski rescuing people has the most dangerous job out there and the highest odds of things turning bad. Totally. Sort of more to your point, right? I I fully agree with that. Here's another one, though. Different... A different sort of counter narrative. The photographers and the videographers are the ones that make it possible for you, Albie Layer, to make a living surfing. If you're complaining about how surfing big waves is dangerous, why don't you quit and get a job like the rest of us? Yeah, and <laughs> I, I don't feel like Albie was necessarily like questioning anybody's job or where his value is in the whole exchange. I think it's just a matter of recognizing hey, five or 10 years ago, it was just me and a small group of guys who all had buddies who were willing to play their part of safety and other buddies who are willing to play their part of photographers. Now it's gotten overrun where there's probably a lot of people who aren't qualified to be out here. And so the people who are and the safety team hasn't grown at the same rate. So now this overtaxed or over, you know, used safety team is rescuing guys who shouldn't be out here in the first place. And there's more photographers that are one of the things he stated was they're kind of creating this barrier of skis to be in position to take the right photos, which then blocks potential safety teams from rushing 
a straight line to get to where they need to go to rescue somebody. So all of these elements of it becoming popular have diminished safety for for those of us who might be qualified and be able to afford the team to, to take care of us, you know. Here's another interesting point on Instagram. Yeah. The problem is, is that surfers have inflatable vests, so they're not going to die. The new danger is the actual people who shouldn't be out there, not the waves. Big wave surfing is just late to the party. This has been the case in smaller waves for years. Another guy writes, no skis, no gas, no noise, no photographers, no vests, no leashes. Board, baggies, brains, and balls. Let's roll. Ocean swimmers only. Yeah, I'm throwing that guy's comment out. That's like the high and the low judge get thrown out and you go with the average. That one gets tossed. Here's another one that sort of speaks to what you were saying. Solution is simple. Don't take the risk unless you're willing to pay the ultimate price. No more jet skis. Those who want to profit off surfing are ruining it for themselves. So quit whining. Yeah. So you're getting opinions now. What's really interesting. Historically, I don't know if you remember this or not. I interviewed Laird maybe in 2002 or something. And he had just come out with a movie called The Crazy Train or Riding the Crazy Train. And the whole movie was about the amount of, this was before paddling at Jaws. Everybody was towing. So there was all these tow teams. And there was like 35, 45 skis doing circles out the back, picking up every single wave. And it was just like, no one knew who was, who's right away. There was like literally a, a vehicle um, movement issue. Merry-go-round. And, and so he put out this movie called The Crazy Train. And then lo and behold, what happened is the paddle guys showed up and that crazy train of towing surfers left. They're just, there's, that doesn't exist anymore. But we now have this new problem. And it's what we've just mentioned. So the real problem here seems to just be too many people, either mm-hmm. on skis or paddling. But I think there is something to the idea of the vest being one of the, it's kind of like the leash. It's like, oh, I can do it now. I got a vest. Yeah. You and I can go out there if we got the balls. But with a vest, we can pull the vest at any time and we're going to come to the surface and be breathing. I think there's a bit of hubris for that commenter to say that with vests, you don't die. No, dude. People get hit in the head. People can still drown with a vest on. Like, I... Do you think it's there not would be that many people out there thing. without the vest? Probably if not. If you banned no, vests, there would be less people. Yeah. Yes, there would be less. Okay, so the vest is their lifeline. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just, I'm it's just throwing it out there. It's a false sense of security. There. It's an added sense of security, but it's not a 100% foolproof solution. Yeah. Um, I would. I, I'm, I've noticed it's shocking more people don't get hurt, vest or not, between surfing giant waves like that and probably the less than qualified people doing it people surfing back door you know dusty pain obviously got the head injury people surfing back door without helmets um all the shore break shooters now based on clark little success like you see people getting slammed on shore break nowadays that i couldn't have fathomed when i was a kid i'd go play in the 10 make not 10 five foot shore break get slammed and sandblasted and get absolutely scared like I could be paralyzed. And now we're seeing guys doing it on 15-foot shore break, kids just getting thrown and then going back out and doing it again and taking an inflatable raft. I cannot believe more people don't get hurt in surfing nowadays. It's shocking, right? 
Well, speaking of people getting hurt, the following two days, three days after this big swell, it hit at Mavericks on Thursday, one of the largest days ever. 50, 60 foot sets for sure, said Frank Chiordi, the, um, how do you say his last name? You know, I've known Frank forever. And it's one of those last names. I yeah, something like that. Quarty. 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 Anyway, he's a veteran surf photographer out at Mavericks. He's been doing it forever. He's rescued many, many people. And um, on this day, he, there was another photographer. His name skips me right now. You might have it in your notes. Um, a well-known guy who, who shoots, or actually he's a boat driver and he brings photographers out there. He's got like a little whaler, like, you know, like a 32 foot whaler or something. And um, one of these rogue sets got him, got his boat, flipped him over, his photographer not wearing a wetsuit, and he both in the water. They both had to be rescued. His boat gone forever, destroyed. And Frank went in to pick him up, and some of the debris from, the, from his boat got stuck in the intake valve of Frank's jet ski, personal watercraft. And Frank lost his watercraft and his camera and all of everything else. So... Um, a big, big day on that Thursday at Mavericks. I don't know if you saw any of the pictures or the oh, yeah. video. Yeah. There's a video I put on my Instagram that it's the it looks like rifles. It's just like this insane, mean, meaty. It's the first time I've maybe I've seen Mavericks top to bottom have a long peeling section that then spit that you could have made it out of. Now, this was an almost an unrideable wave. You probably could have towed it if you were put into it at the right time. But it was... It was something that was just crazy, big, mean, and gnarly. And Mavericks was just mental on that Thursday. And are you surprised that they didn't run the Mavericks event that week? I'm surprised they didn't put yellow light it. It it seems like they shouldn't have run that day because very few waves were actually rideable. Yeah. Pete Mel says, um, who was the former big wave tour commissioner, he was out there and he said, what was going on this morning? I've only seen in that range maybe two or three times before it looked like a national monument at that size it's like checking out niagara falls he it was biggest in the morning and he did not get any waves in the morning he said but he got a couple in the afternoon yeah and he said there was really you look at the photos you'll notice nobody's actually riding any waves it's, it's people so just paddling around yeah so um apparently they shouldn't have run i mean i in one sense, yeah, put them in the biggest waves possible. But I think if the powers that be are deciding not to run, there's probably a reason why. Yeah. But why not? Why wasn't it yellow lit? Knowing that the swell of the decade was coming, why was not? Why wasn't it yellow lit? Yeah, I put I put some stuff on Instagram and I got semi attacked for doing it by by Bill Sharp, who runs you know forever. He was that double XL guy and the big wave awards guy, and a couple of other people were like. Oh, everyone's a freaking expert. You know, there's a reason we're not running, but I want you to shut your mouth. And you know, so what's the reason? People just got kind of hurt on me a little bit, but um, I don't know. And that's fine. You know, I'm not the expert. I even put that. I wrote that in my thing. I wrote, "Hey, it looks like it could be a Mavericks event." Well, look at this. You know, like 17 feet, 17 seconds. Blah blah blah. You know, yeah, there could be some south winds. But I wrote in my thing. You know caveat i am not an expert forecaster i'm just throwing this out there to see what's going on like give us some insight right and no insight though no i i'm not there but i mean like within five hours surfline and wsl put out their official we're not going to run it because we're concerned about the south winds which they should have been there was definitely a front moving down the, the coast that yeah. was going to 
create some problems and, and it did, so. Yeah, interesting. Did you know um, that with the Mavericks Challenge, they have a women's event this year? Yeah. Paige Alms, Bianca Valenti, Emily Erickson, Kiala Kenley, Justine DuPont and Sarah Gerhard are the uh, surfers in the event. Yeah. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I love, there was one image of Pete Mel paddling over a wave. So good. It's such a great image. Yeah. I mean. It's iconic. Oh, Probably it, gonna, it's going to be for yeah, it's sure. it's an iconic image. Yeah. It's gnarly. Crazy. Pete Mel, by the way, so, so gnarly. Pete's rad. <laughs> just like. He is gnarly. It's rad that like we have him as a commentator now, and I don't think he's the best commentator, but to have the experience that he has, I think makes it worthwhile for sure. You know, like he makes up for that in a world of experience being out there on that day. His son was out there with him too. Yeah. He's like, I just want to get John out there to like feel the power. Even if he doesn't catch any waves, just feel the power. Yeah. It was beyond everyone's reach is what he said. He goes, it was beyond John's reach, but frankly it was beyond all of our reach. It was just national monument like situation, Niagara Falls. So yeah, the world surf league, there's a reason Renato spoke out on some Brazilian moist magazine. And uh, um, it's because the World Surf League didn't have a, a PR and communications expert, chief marketing officer. Now they do. <laughs> <laughs> the World Surf League today announced the appointment of Will Chignell, and not a second too soon, as they're just putting the putting Renato, putting the uh, letting Renato do the <laughs> putting freestyle. Renato got to shut him up. That was his first order of business. This new guy is giving Renato a phone call. No, look, Chignell joins the WSL. As the chief marketing officer, it's in his, and I'm reading from the press release, it's an exciting time for the WSL, and he's going to support CEO Sophie Goldschmidt and her executive team in leading the company in 2018 and beyond. And some background on the new chief marketing officer. He held high-level executive positions. What does that even mean? <laughs> at the America's Cup, where he was, oh, he was the chief marketing communications officer, okay, and at Rugby Football Union, which hosted Rugby World Cup in 2015. And prior to these roles, he ran his own marketing communications consultancy and previously was an international broadcaster for Sky Sports. Chignell's successful track record across the marketing and communications fields will be vital to the future growth of the league. So not much else in that press release that you can kind of read between the lines. The one thing is, in his quote, he says, there are many landmark events on the horizon. Now, you and I could read into that or not. That's probably just a standard boilerplate response. But maybe there's something out there that we don't know about. We shall see. Are you bummed? You didn't get the job? <laughs> I am. I am bummed. Uh, this guy might be a little bit more, <laughs> might be just a touch more uh, qualified than I. But he probably sent in his resume too. Did you actually apply? I think I did. Oh, did you really? I think I did. I mean, we talked about something in the past, but I think it was a different position. Might have been. Look, they know I'm available. I would love to work for the WSL. I think David feels the same. Yeah. We're here for you, and um, consider us if you will. I want to see you in the commentators, or maybe not in the booth commentator, but like in the studio. I'd be be better maybe as a production guy behind the scenes, getting things, getting good shots. Mm. Who knows? But I'm available. Yeah. I'm Um, a jack of all trades, frankly. I can do some broadcasting. With a wealth of surf knowledge and expertise. Anyway, um, California Gold Surf Auction. Let me plug that. That's coming up May 5th. You can download the app on your smartphone. Go to the App Store, California Gold Surf Auction. 
we've loaded some lots already into the auction and we've got 40 or 45 insane boards that we're in the process of loading into the auction. And that's all going to take place around the world on your smartphone. You can bid from anywhere in the world on these beautiful and valuable and rare uh, investment surfboards. So consider that. Imagine if one day a Billy Gibbons owned Velzy Redwood be, board oh, showed up at the auction. I was thinking that when you said that, I'm like, I'd love to have that board yeah. in the auction. That would yeah, be insane. Yeah. Um, do you have a Duke or a Coop? I do, actually. I do, too. I wonder if you have the same. I bet you do. I bet I don't. Okay. My Duke is related to all these giant waves that we're talking about that have been going on. Do you know who Hugo Val is? Hugo Val? Yeah. No. Don't know who he is. <laughs> is he right. a chef? He sounds like he might be Hugo a chef. Hugo Val. Somewhere. I don't know how he makes a living. It might be as a chef. <laughs> is he the guy that does the backside flutters down the big No, way? that's Lucas Chianca. Oh, yes. Uh, Hugo Val. On Wednesday, January 17th, Alex Botello tows Hugo Val into what many people are calling the largest wave ever surfed at Nazare. And there is nearly zero photographic evidence. Wow. The clip is lined with photographers. There is a wide shot of video. But, so we know this wave exists. But <laughs> it's misty. shooting into, yes, there's a lot of mist, a lot of offshore wind. But it's also shooting into the setting sun behind the wave. Right. So the contrast is so harsh that you can hardly see anything at all. And then... Midway through the ride, a wave explodes off the cliff and all the backwater blocks the view of the wave itself. So you can see the ski more than you could see the surfer and you could see it's a massive wave. But everybody who was in the water is saying it was the biggest wave, not only ever surfed at Nazare, but maybe the biggest wave that's ever broken at Nazare. So there's a section of the wave called Big Mama's which only breaks on the biggest swells. And even then, maybe only a couple of waves during the peak of the swell actually break. And so Hugo says that he had seen one wave break there, and that was four years ago. They saw one approaching that section. So Alex got into position, whipped Hugo into it. Alex and everybody else is claiming it's the biggest wave they've ever seen. Ben Monday for the WSL asked Hugo, he said, there doesn't seem to be a clear image of the video or clear images or video of the wave. How does that make you feel? Hugo said, quote, that's the ironic part of this story. What will stay for life is the happiness and the experience that me and Alex shared. That can never be taken away from us. So it's in our memory files. And maybe it wasn't supposed to be captured. Maybe it was just for us. Look, in the old days, you would pass on your experiences through stories that were shared and kept alive. Now, if you don't have a picture, it doesn't count. However, for us and all the guys that saw the wave from the channel, we all think it was the biggest wave we've ever seen at Nazare. It is what it is. The main thing is the joy we took from the day and that we're all safe. Nothing else matters. End quote. And wow. that's why Hugo that Val is my Duke. Uh, that that's why Hugo Val is my Duke. That's a classy quote right there. And that's cool. And it is, I was thinking when you were telling me the story, I was going, gosh, how fitting that the largest wave ever at Nazare, there's, it's, it's, it's folklore, you know, it makes it almost better. It's like, it's like a uh, Greg Knoll's wave at Makaha. It's like, Oh, you know, no one saw it, but everyone saw it. You know, it's like, it's kind of neat, you know, because you would never think in this day and age that we would have more folklore, like this wave that really nobody isn't really sure. And did it happen? And I don't know. And for yeah. sure it did happen. It was huge. And I think it's kind of cool. There's just enough video evidence that it happened. 
but you can't quite see the details. It's bizarre. Yeah. Uh, and what else is bizarre is in the foreground of this wide shot, you see everybody lined up on the cliff with cameras. <laughs> So it's like, they've all got the same shitty guys, shot. Yeah, it's like, how did you guys blow this? But yeah, it doing? is what it is, you know. And um, I like. Will he win the WSL Big Wave Awards? Good question. I mean, it's also just interesting that um, we live in a day where everything's caught on camera. Like all of my best surf experiences weren't caught on camera. Like the best waves I've ever caught are strictly memories. This didn't happen, by the way. <laughs> right, exactly. That <laughs> I'm fish... just saying, that thing that you think was really a good barrel was just That fish I caught. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of interesting um, that this is even a conversation because up until this time in our life, it was all just story. I know. Speaking of crazy video, listeners don't know this, but next time we get together, we're going to have an incredible story to tell you. Oh my gosh, I can't wait. <laughs> This has been simmering for so long. Are we going to be able to hold on to this until our next visit together? I'll get together with you the day of if you want to. Well, I just don't want you spitting it out with Chaz or anything. Uh, I will not. Will you hold our memory? Yes. <laughs> Jealous lover, dude. Will well, you I hold mean, our memory? I want to, well, I don't, I'll, if you share it with Chaz, make sure I'm there too so I can like tell my side. Of I didn't story. have this experience with Chaz. I know, but I'm just saying you might you might want to tell Chaz and the listeners at that point about it. So. Yeah, no. I sense that the same people that listen to that listen to this. So it's There's like, overlap for yeah. sure. Do you um, have a, so what was your Duke? My Duke is Kelly Slater. Oh. Who is kind of an obvious one, but he stepped in in a big way supporting this, this, oh. sad, this girl at LCC, my daughter's high school, Kira Stanley. She's a junior at La Costa Canyon High School, and she's a surf instructor in Encinitas. And she was diagnosed with a form of brain cancer called... Diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, and it's not looking good for Kira, sadly. And there was a fundraiser and a surf contest took place last weekend, and the medical treatment cost the family like thirty grand every three weeks. Wow! So there was a fundraiser, and Kelly not only gave a board or two, no, he gave a trip to the surf ranch. I think he gave two trips to the surf ranch as part of the raffle, but he also showed up and met Kira and spent an hour with Kira, and you know it was. Didn't do like a passing by, hey, hi, how are you? I'm Kelly. Take a photo and leave. Like he spent time with her, meaningful time with her. I think they met at the place in Encinitas where they were having the, or Carlsbad where they were having the fundraiser. It was uh, at KS Wave. Park 101? Carlsbad Park 101? No, yeah, they also took a photo at the KS Wave company, right? Yeah, in the offices. Yeah, and there was a photo there of, so anyway, both Kira and Kelly are my dukes kira probably more so than kelly kira has to deal with this horrible uh situation that's become of her and um, but kelly good on him you know he's so easy we you know we give kelly he's easy to he's an easy target but we love kelly slater he does wonderful things and he continues to um lead with with meaningful action you know and um you know he is you can't say people that and i'm i occasionally you and i both occasionally are critical of Kelly, but but aren't um, you critical of your own children? You know what I mean. Like you, <laughs> yeah. you, you give them negative feedback regularly or critical feedback, probably on the daily. It's because Kelly, we love you. It's because <laughs> you. I mean, I don't He's have. The greatest. He's I don't the greatest. have. He's the goat. I don't have kids, so Kelly, I love you like I would love my own kid if I had a kid. I but I, I, that's where the critical feedback comes. It's because we care. I look at it too, like. um like Kobe Bryant. Like I've got a buddy that just absolutely loves Kobe Bryant. But in my mind, yeah, Kobe's a great basketball player, but 
off the court, he's a dick. Mm. I mean, at least that's the, the vibe I get, right? Yeah. And there's athletes like that, you know? And then there's athletes that are the greatest ever, and they're also genuinely great human beings. Right. And it's so easy to throw darts at Kelly and go, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? You should do this. You're lame because, you know. But in the big picture, this guy is a great human being. Of course, yeah. Above and beyond what he did in the water. And that is, in my opinion, the, the true measure of what a goat is, the greatest of all time. Totally. Like Jack Nicholas. Yeah. Yeah. And well, many, many others. And shout out to our podcast cohort, uh, Chris Cote, commentated that event, I believe. Yes. That surf contest. Yes. Um, I have a musty moment and a kook to go out on a sour note since yeah, we just had such kooks. a high. Uh, you invented the kook and do I know, thing. but I, Dude, I what do you mean you don't do Well, kooks? I just don't want to rip people because I just don't know if it's like the best use of my energy. So Although we do rip Kelly. I was going to say, you invented the category. Dude. I did. So you put... Okay, my kook... Is, no, go ahead. You do, actually. I don't have one. Oh, okay. My kook um, is whoever wrote out Jamie O'Brien's winning check for the Dahui backdoor shootout. They misspelled... <laughs> so it's nobody. It's somebody. No, it's somebody. Somebody, somebody wrote... That's somebody's this writing. This is an easy kook for you because this isn't like... You're, you're not really calling anyone out, which is okay. I'm just pointing you need it out. To find, you need to work with my tactics. See, I find a workaround. I agree with you. I don't want to be negative and like hurt somebody's feelings, but I still find a way to give the listeners what they want, which you're, is a duke and a kook. You're calling out Eddie Rothman, basically. <laughs> I don't know. Whoever it is, right. they misspelled the word 40. <laughs> so jamie this is a spelling situation jamie o'brien i yes i hold them to reasonably right 40 is not no it's not a difficult word do to they spell. use the number four zero good or? question so jamie o'brien won forty thousand dollars for winning the dahui backdoor shootout they they misspelled 40 which is correctly spelled f-o-r-t-y as f-o-u-r-t-y so they spelled the word four and then put a t-y at the end of it some might say that's a reasonable mistake to make. I would argue uh, that is third grade Therein grammar. Therein the look of uh, competitive surfing on the North Shore. That is, yeah, a real problem. So I once did a, um, I would say a diatribe. Maybe some would call it a soliloquy on the need for professionalism remember. in surfing. This you, was I, three years ago at least. Who were you calling out at that time? It was the WSL. Jeez, no, I think it was like Quicksilver's Instagram. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Quicksilver. Um, so, but we see it all the time. I have an ongoing thread with a buddy of mine that is strictly criticizing professional surfers and surf brands and surf media's terrible grammar and spelling mistakes publicly, like in press releases, on their website, in their branding. It just I stuff- am so guilty of that. You guys better include me. In- I'm constantly going, oh my God, I can't believe I sent that out. Look, I misspelled 40. I'll, I'll be honest. I get attacked by listeners as well. They're like, dude, you constantly rail against this. And yet you look, I don't have a stream I'm, I'm no of better. copy editors in yeah, front of me to yeah. run stuff through. I'm no better. Okay. I accept and I admit it that, but I aspire, okay. but I aspire to be better. Like I'm, let's all be accountable here. Sure. You guys can call me out when I blow it. Cause I do blow. I write a lot of stuff. It all ends up. So I'm going to make mistakes and I don't have editors. So by all means, call me out and then I'll try to do better next time. However, when you're writing a check, it's an oversized check that's going to hang on somebody's wall <laughs> yeah, for the rest of their life that they're going to have, hand down to their kids. What's worse is that nobody else noticed it, right? Like nobody, did anyone notice That's that? the thing, right. Well, I'm sure the internet notices, but right, like... But I mean, the people on the beach, the, the people... No, I don't think Jamie noticed. Jamie still doesn't probably know. <laughs> oh 
<laughs> so kook of the week whoever wrote the word 40 on jamie o'brien's show yeah. all right musty moment for me real quick instagram go follow joe pease p-e-a-s-e he's an illustrator does all these super rad animations You've probably seen them. They're very simple, but really cool. One that I think somebody, maybe Chris Cote or somebody reposted was um, one line illustrations. It's a pink background with a one line illustration of a wave, super simple. And then John John's body and form and yeah, but it's Doing all like turn. line art. It's just line yeah, art. Yeah, but you and can it's tell all that line. it's him. Like he does such a great job of finding that one part in the body movement and he accentuates it with just one piece of line art. It's him doing a turn, I believe, at Aukai on one of those massive days. Yeah. Oh, sorry about that. Um, I, did, I did. It was on Chris Cote's. Insta. Yeah. And it's John John doing a turn and it's like, oh, it's identifiably John John, even though it's this one line thing. Uh, so at Joe Pease just does really, really cool surf and skate animation and illustration. So give that dude a follow. Oh, one other thing real quick. There's a one wave challenge this Saturday at La Jolla Shores. The one wave challenge is attempt to break the Guinness Book of World oh, Records yeah, yeah. by getting the most amount of people on one wave. And it's a fundraiser, of course, for the Boys to Men mentoring program in San Diego. So if you want to come down and surf in it um, or volunteer, there's also a fun run. Like you can get involved in helping this fundraiser. It's going to be a beautiful Saturday in La Jolla, Saturday morning at La Jolla Shore. So come down and join us. Awesome. Scott, we just delivered maybe our largest episode of all time. Really? Pushing on two hours. Oh, my God. Congratulations. Yeah, I hope I didn't bore anyone. Too bad that that plastic (laughs) machine Bob McTavish thing. Sometimes when I get into reading, I'm like, God, are people just tuning out? No, it's great history. By the way, so... Shout out to Matt Warshaw for all that history. Three bucks a month to join the Encyclopedia of Surfing. Why, oh, it's, why wouldn't you? It's, it's so that, great. It's that stuff. I love Unlock, it. I like love repeated. It. It's and it's amazing. stuff I know, and I, I like to get re It's stuff you know, but, but he does a great job telling the story. Yeah, you he know, does. He does a phenomenal job. So encyclopediaofsurfing.com definitely deserves everybody's attention. Three bucks a month. Easy peasy. Yes. And then uh, spitpodcast.com also has a donation platform where you can support this show. Scott and I are working for free, essentially. And um, any little support, Scott's investing in microphones, um, things like that. There's like actual hard expenses plus a lot of hours wrapped up in this work. So if you can throw some change into the bucket, we would appreciate it. Spitpodcast.com. Absolutely. All right, Scott. Okay. And then until next time, adios and aloha. Whoa. Welcome back, Scott. What are we doing? Well, we've got some breaking news. It just happened here as we were signing off and we feel like we need to get to this. So here it is. Breaking, breaking, breaking news. The World Surf League and Facebook have announced an historic partnership today that makes the social media platform the exclusive digital home for the top live events in surfing in 2018 and 2019. Wow. This includes all elite men's and women's championship tour events, the qualifying series 10,000, and big wave world t- events, as well as world junior championships. You're only going to get the WSL on Facebook. That means no that more right? YouTube. That's what I'm reading. I'm no more, to no out. more worldsurfleague.com? That's what I'm thinking. I mean, if Unless this is they... the exclusive... It says wow. exclusive. This is the only place. Wow. Because here's my issue. The Facebook video function 
isn't that effective for me. Like it stalls out, it buffers. It's not a super clean stream for me. That might be on the production side, though. That might not be Facebook side of it. Facebook might just be offering the, the you know, the, the plug-in for whatever your feed is. And so that might be on the, I, I don't know. But I think to answer your question, is this the only place, the only place we're going to be able to watch WSL next year is on Facebook. Here's a sentence. We're thrilled to become the exclusive home of the World Surf League's live events for the next two years. Facebook head of global sports and partnerships. That kind of sums it up. This is the only place you're going to be able to get the WSL. I don't think you'll be able to get it on the WSL's website because that's think, not an exclusive. Okay. Deal. I think, let me read this sentence, which I think means that they will be able to. It says mm. the deal builds upon an, the non-exclusive live rights agreement that Facebook and WSL struck last year in which all men's and women's championship tour events were simulcast on Facebook and WSL's website and mobile app. Aside from the significant reach on the WSL channels, um, yeah, okay, I don't know, actually. It's, it said it builds upon that deal which was reached last year. Yeah, so, so maybe I, it goes I'm exclusive. reading that that means they started a relationship and now they're giving it all to Facebook. Wow. Why else would they put out a release? Right. Yeah, we're thrilled to become an exclusive home for the WSL's live events for the next two years, says Dan Reed, Facebook's head of global sports marketing. This is a natural step in a perfect partnership. Hmm. And it allows them to to retain the free offering to fans and allows us to deliver the world's best surfing to even more people on Facebook's platform. Anyway, we're reading into it. I think this means the only place we're going to get it is Facebook, but we will both emailed our friend Dave Prodan and find out if that's what this means. I think that's what this means. Wow. Interesting. Facebook only. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. All right, right, Scott. Should I sign off? Sure. Until next time, adios and aloha.
Yeah.